Against the malignancy of the discontented, the turbulent, and the vicious, no abilities, no exertions, nor the most unshaken integrity, or any safeguard. The words of President George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we'll look at where we are right now at 1 p.m. Eastern on Friday. We look at the challenges facing the Republic this week, the challenges within the Democratic Party. And in our hot take segment, we'll discuss Ronald Klain, the McCain family, Trump being sued, as well as our time with our producer, Justin. We will then wrap with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. Patrick, I need to start this week with a mea culpa. Okay. I uh, <laughs> I play in a lot of fantasy baseball leagues. And last week in discussing, in discussing rather, um, the third party candidate, Gary Johnson, I referred to him numerous times. As Brad Johnson, which is the name of a man I play in. Actually, two, there are two Brad Johnsons in the fantasy baseball world, and I play in leagues with two of them. And so the name Gary Johnson became Brad Johnson. I had a friend of mine, uh, a political leader on the West Coast, who I like very much, who uh, called me out for this uh, with great glee. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to have to speak to that because uh, I, I remember saying Brad Johnson. And, you know, there's that moment where you, you say something and you say, I'm not sure that that's right, but all right, I'm just going to keep going here. Um, I, I clearly was not right. And I apologize. I should have picked up on that for you. Well, I think you knew, but I, I was on one of my, uh, my, yeah. my Johnson move rants. And so I didn't really give you the time. So, <laughs> but anyway, mea culpa, got to take responsibility for mistakes and I'm happy to take responsibility for that. Patrick. Now let's get on to, we're going to start this week with the Republic and the challenges to the Republic this week. A new poll came out that says that 70% of Republicans believe that the election has been tampered with or stolen. Um, I was wondering what you think of that. Not surprised. Uh, we've seen this all along and is one of the things that we've come to understand with the way polling has gone is that uh, people just simply line up behind what they're told by their whoever whoever they believe, whoever their leadership is. And so if Donald Trump says the election's been stolen, then the people believe the election's been stolen. And um you know, it's even the media reporting that there's that Trump is doing this and that there's no evidence that this is happening is still reporting that Trump is claiming this. And that's what people hear and believe uh, on his side. And that, in a nutshell, is the problem that we face right now. Would you say that there's any evidence that has come forward right now? There's Neil Katyal, the the lawyer who uh, worked in the Obama administration, does this great thing uh, on Twitter every night where he sort of explains what's going on with these lawsuits and basically just flat out says there's nothing to this. This is not going to change anything. Joe Biden is going to be elected on January 20th. I watch it every night and sort of find a little peace and joy from those uh, from Neil Katyal. But I mean, that is the truth, right? What Katiel is saying is that there's there's nothing that's going to change the result. It's just the the dynamics of what we see and think. Yes, I mean uh, even um, the Department of Homeland Security, CISA, this division within the department there that uh, handles 
election uh, issues and has issued a statement that said we are not turning up any evidence of, of widespread fraud. And when, when they what they mean by that is that, you know, we find, you know, the occasional here or there, somebody filled out two ballots or did a provisional ballot on top of their regular ballot. Um, that's that's happens every single election. We're finding nothing that suggests that anything is out there that happened that is anywhere near the level that it could change 10,000 votes in a particular state, which you is know, the minimum yeah. that you would need to flip uh, Georgia and Arizona right now. Right. And Arizona has been called, which also the the nation of China has just, you know, congratulated uh, President-elect Biden on his victory, which means that the only people left are Vladimir Putin and uh, Donald Trump and many members of the Republican Party. And we're going to get into what they're thinking and what they're doing a little bit later. But this whole conversation reminds me of a Mark Twain quote, which we found is actually, uh, we're not sure exactly what the quote is, but the gist of the quote is a lie travels around the globe while the truth is putting on its shoes. Uh, You found another one about lacing up its boots that was halfway around the globe, right? Yeah, as with everything with Mark Twain, uh, that's that's about... I, I think about 80% of the quotes ascribed to Mark Twain weren't actually said by him or invented by him, uh, but <laughs> which is which is perfect for this particular quote, right? Yeah, right. Um, actually, uh, but but I mean, yeah, the point that that's the point is that it's much easier to spread something that is based uh, in a lie because it just plays on a fear, plays on this visceral need that we have to go. Aha! I knew this. I knew something shady was up. And it's funny, we're just much more inclined to accept those kinds of statements without criticism, uh, without skepticism at all, without credul- you know, with complete credulity uh, and, and not the countervailing evidence, which is, you know, maybe it's a little bit more, more nuanced than what we're seeing right here. So, uh, you know, you know this, where, this is where we stand right now. This is the problem. And um, this, this raises a big question about, you know, Donald Trump's influence over What's going to happen over the next few weeks? Well, Trump is, if we looked at him as a, sort of a disease on the republic, and I think that we did, you know, the, the choices that he was making and the acts that he was taking. Um, what's interesting now is that we have, it seems, put Biden in that position, which should take the disease out of play. However, like COVID-19, there are side effects. And I think this is one of the great side effects of what's happening right now. And uh, I think it's going to be remarkably dangerous. When Pompeo this past week said, yes, it will be a very smooth transition to a second Trump administration. When Peter Navarro came out earlier today and basically said, um, no, we're just going to have a second um, second administration. We're, we're moving forward with those plans. That's deep and dangerous stuff for the sake of the republic. Because, I mean, that's have we, we've never seen anything remotely like this before in our history, have we? Not, not that I know of. I mean, I am not, uh, you know, super clear on or, or, or an astute student of uh, a couple of, of the 19th century cases where the election was thrown into the House of Representatives because it was it wasn't clear and there were some shady dealings, particularly the uh, Tilden Hayes mm-hmm. race in the, in right, the right, right. 1900s, right? So I don't know whether there was something like similar, there, but of course, we weren't a world power back then. Either so, this is why things become significantly more important, to, not just for the republic, but for national security. And you know, the analogy or the metaphor that I've always used, as you know, is that Trump is not the actual disease that got us 
into the intensive care unit. He's the staff infection that we developed after we already right. got there. Yeah. Now, we seem to have fought off the initial staph infection. But as you said, there are still side effects from that staph infection. And there's still the underlying disease that we need to deal with um, as well uh, that, that got us there. And with the, these lingering effects of the staph infection could come back to bite you. Um, and it could still kill you at this point. And that's, I think, you know, taking that metaphor as, uh, as far as I torturedly can, uh, that, yeah, I, th I think I see exactly what, you know, you're saying is that we're still in a very, very precarious situation because of the unwillingness of, of the Trump administration and his hangers on to move, you know, to, to acknowledge the reality of what happened and, uh, to do what is necessary to show that, our republic still works, and we'll move on to the to the peaceful transition. Many, meanwhile, many of the uh, stars of the Apprentice and the Celebrity Apprentice have been coming out and sharing their views over the course of the last twenty four hours, either with the president or behind the scenes. Geraldo Rivera just came out and basically said that he just spoke to the president, who is feeling very sad, but um, will do the right thing once everything happens. Even, but wants to see all the <laughs> all the ballots counted. But in the Washington Post, Greg Sargent. Uh, wrote about the Trump family and how they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, where you have Eric and Eric and Don Jr. Uh, saying fight this to the bitter end, where you have Jared and Ivanka who are saying no, you got to think long term and it will look bad for you. I wonder how bad it will look. But this was the quote. Meanwhile, the Trump family is reportedly consumed in an internal debate over whether Trump should even concede the election at all. A debate whose contours appear almost entirely shaped around what's good for them, which is what Ivanka and Jared are sort of focusing their attention on is like, we got to get out of this clean enough that we can have a third act because right. this has been their first and second act, but they're looking towards their future. Whereas Eric and Don, you know, they got their guns strapped to their backs and they're going out to shoot the elephant, which is the Republic. Right. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that's probably a good uh, description of how those different uh, Trump children think uh, yeah. based, on, based on what we've seen over the past four years. And what was uh, curious, we know that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are really, it seems largely, looking forward to getting the albatross of Trump off their back, right? They, right. they, 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 they did not love having to answer all these questions these, about tweets and things over these last four years and swallowing their tongue, as we saw with our friend Ben Sass. Um, but it really, it's come out. It's very much about Georgia. John Thune, who I spoke of many months ago as a hope, right? I said, Batman is Romney. Uh, Robin is, is sass. And there's John Thune standing there looking really upset behind Mitch McConnell, number two in the Senate, basically came out and said, look, we need his voters in Georgia. And yeah. if we don't defend him during this time, they're not going to come out. Then we lose the majority. And then all heck breaks, breaks loose. Yeah, this is probably, this is, I would think this is the key reason why McConnell has been acting the way he has, um, and, and perhaps the only reason why he has been acting this way, rather than at least giving a tacit acknowledgement to Biden's win. And, I mean, we saw it right away. Um, we saw uh, the, the the Trump, uh, the uh, junior and um, Eric you know, making statements the, the, the day after the election. Where are the Republicans defending us? Where are the Republicans right. coming out and saying this is a fraud? Where are our front Republicans friends? We will remember you when you don't stand for us. Well, guess what? You got a runoff in Georgia in uh, two months and less than two months now, early January, that will decide 
the balance of power within the Senate will decide whether Mitch McConnell continues as majority leader. Um, and he definitely does not want to give that position up by, by hook or by crook. He might not be able to get his judges through anymore. But he can stop he those judges. But he can stop those judges, right. And um, that's that's clearly what's been most important to him and what's been driving him all along. And if the word goes out that the Republican establishment, including these two candidates, who are, who are Republican candidates who are running in, in the runoff, did not give Trump adequate support. And Trump mm-hmm. sends the signal that, yeah, they're, you know, I'm done, I'm through. He accepts the defeat. But then in accepting the defeat, he throws everybody in the Republican Party under the bus. Which you can see him do for sure. Right. And that's what they're worried about. Because if he does that, then his voters, his particular core base of voters doesn't show up in that runoff. And the Democrats can win that. Do you think and there's any little spot in the Republican Party where they go, God, this sucks. It sucks that I've got to be on record not stepping up the way that Ra- Sass stepped up, the way that Romney stepped up, the way that DeWine has stepped up. Do you think that there's a number of them who are just sort of like, this stinks that we're put in this situation? Oh, yeah. And then it looks like it looks like they're never going to get out of the situation, actually. I mean, they're talking about Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kim. I, I can't pronounce Gallagher. her name. Thank you. I'm not even going to. What is it? Gallagher? It's just Gallagher, yeah. No, it's good. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh um, no, it's not Gallagher. I'm going to stop oh. you from having to do a mea couple next week. Kim, who did the big scream, Kim, that they're talking about trying to take over as the head of the RNC. That means, I mean, if that happens, there's just, there's no path forward for the Republican Party to be anything but the party of Trump, period. I mean, I, I, it kind of feels like that right now. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, this, these are the people who, uh, Guilfoyle, Kim Guilfoyle, thank well you. Well done. Thank well, you for, uh, yeah, I knew, I knew it was to me. That's what you want to do as a partner. You got to get in there and say, oh, no, no, Marco <laughs> yeah. Leas in Oregon Kim, is going to call Gilf- you out. Well, who, who, by the way, um, was, uh, had dated, I think even may, perhaps lived with Gavin Newsom. Maybe mm-hmm. he, was, he was even married to Gavin Newsom. Married. Yeah. yeah, they were married. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, so I, I don't think she's on the, uh, short list for him to appoint to, uh, Phil. Kamala Harris's Senate seat at this particular point in time. Um, I, I'm going to call that an assurance. Yeah, that yeah, I think so. So, but, but yeah, but you have these two different uh, groups in the Republican Party. So you have the the ones that figure Donald Trump is still going to be a force, and is going to be a force for the next few years in the party. So you have the Ted Cruz's in that lot. Yes, who are, are who are banking on that that if they if they stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stay in good with, with, with Trump, then, then maybe they can take over Trump's voters when 2024 rolls around, assuming that Trump is no longer in the picture. Then you have the others who I think are majority, but you know, they're, they're the weak, cowardly, spineless ones. The ones, these are the ones that are sending out the signals that are saying, even within the white house, like Langford. Yeah. Uh, that are saying that, um, uh, yeah, Trump, uh, he understands that he's at some point he's going to have to um, admit to this. He's uh, he's just doing it to make sure to you know keep his base with him or or you know that he knows his base is upset. I mean they're they're making up all sorts of nonsense that we know that, that that's not how Trump thinks. But they're trying to kind of carve out a path for them because they know that they are going to need to have a career in the post-Trump world too. And they can become pariahs potentially. So, I mean, everybody's looking out for themselves, regardless of whether they are aligning with Trump or just secretly holding back right now. Well, 
I again, I mean, when we were talking about the Guardian of the Week, I couldn't think of anybody. You couldn't think of anybody. I put in a placeholder, which we got rid of. And we found we found somebody really good, actually. We're pretty excited about who our Guardian of the Week is going to be. But Ben Sass is not doing what Marco Rubio is doing and what Ted Cruz is doing. He has eliminated himself as a 2024 candidate for the Republican Party by coming out and calling him president-elect Biden. Has he not? Well, this is the... Um... This is the calculation that folks like Chris Christie and others are making right now. Okay. That there might be enough, uh, you know, you might have Ted Cruz, Don Jr., and a whole bunch of folks fighting over the Trump wing of the party in 2024. And they might be able to carve out a path for themselves in amongst the non-Trump voters. But what percentage is that, Patrick? Yeah, I, well, it seems like I mean, it's a much smaller percentage now than it was in 2016 when Trump actually won the nomination, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, don't know. I mean, but, four days but for ago, them, for them, Sass it's their can, only path. Yeah, it is their only path. But I don't think there is a path anymore in that party. I mean, I, I just don't. I, I don't see. I, I, I had a moment, a, a little fairy tale, you know, daydream moment today, where I wondered. I genuinely wondered because the family is somewhat toxic. What would happen if both Don Jr. and Ivanka both wanted to run for president in twenty twenty four? Like, would they run against each other in the primary? Like, could could you? <laughs> Could you imagine where where Donald sort of says, you know, it, it, like if let's say the president is not making a call on this and he says, sure, both of you run. Let's see who who the Republicans want more. <laughs> I mean, I really had that moment like every, everywhere else. It would be, well, one member of the family should do this and the other member shouldn't. But I could see that happening because Don Jr. I, I don't know if he would be quite as appealing as his dad. No, I don't think so. I don't think you can replicate it, although. There was an article in The Atlantic um, that said the next authoritarian president will be be competent. And that's yes. what we have to worry about. Tucker, it, it won't be Don Jr. It will be sure. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson yep. could do a fine job of that. And you can you can actually if you if you look ahead and sort of see like how like Tucker Carlson, he's the host of a television show. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. And he's mm -hmm. smart as hell. And yeah. dangerous, as dangerous as the day is long. So I don't know. I mean, the, the, now we, we I'm just going to get to one last point about the Republic talking about uh, President elect Biden, who I've decided this week is I, I am I have great, great affection for just his his empathy and kindness is is such a perfect solve for our situation. But this was, uh, Greg Sargent also wrote this, the president-elect's team is concerned that is being shut out of planning for the vaccine distribution. Now, what we've mostly seen is them say, oh, it's fine, let it go, we're fine, we can do this, but this is new. A huge undertaking that the incoming administration expects to inherit the moment Mr. Biden is sworn in. His advisors said they have had not had access to the details of Warp Speed, the project that has vaccine distribution planning well underway and understand little about its working. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is what the problem the problem is going to be. Um, not, I mean, national security on so many levels, but the pandemic is also an issue of national security. And the, pre the president-elect not having a good handle on what's going on, where, where the plans already are, where the resources have already been um, allocated, and put into you know what what wheels already started to turn is is going to be really problematic. Um, you know I don't you know we you, we remember we did like well, how the, how the state of the patient was last week after the election. I was a little bit more positive I think than you were then, but I'm 
um, getting a little bit more worried about what we've been seeing over the past week. I, I thought that we'd see, even with Trump being a crybaby, I thought we'd see a little bit more of uh, the normal transition process be underway at this point. Yeah. And Senator Lankford said that if by today he was not getting those intelligence briefings, he was going to step in and then he got slapped down by yep. Trump supporters. And that's that's kind of the the setup. I mean, my my argument is that when Biden does come into office with all these other things, with 70 percent of Republicans believing that it has been stolen, that the election was stolen, hopefully that number will go down and not up. Um, I think what matters is going to be how, what Biden does. I received a couple of messages from people who I know were big Trump supporters the night of the election or maybe it was the day after. Whenever Biden came out and made his come together speech, I got a number of messages on Facebook and personal messages just saying, hey, he did really good. I have high hopes for the future. I'd like to think that when the seas settle a little bit and Biden starts to uh, bring more of a normalcy to the situation. If indeed, when indeed, I'm going to say when, when indeed he becomes the president on January 20th at 1201, that there is going to be a little period of time there, hopefully, where he can sway the country and try yeah. to bring the country together. It's it's, it's the only hope out, we have. Uh, yeah, uh, but I don't hold out much hope for it, and here's why. Uh, when, when Barack Obama was elected president, um, there was a, a real groundswell of support for him in the public, this sense of, of hope of, of, you know, uh, that we have turned a corner as a country because we elected a bl- black man as president in large part. And when he came into office, he had something like cl- close to a 70% approval rating. And what happened is you had Mitch McConnell do everything in his power to bring that uh, approval rating down as quickly as he could by not working with uh, Obama on uh, the, the initial Recovery Act that was needed in the mm-hmm. midst of that uh, economic that, downturn. That, that, that downturn, right. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, you know, putting a stop, you know, saying that the, basically that they wouldn't even participate at all in the ACA negotiations. I remember them all coming to the table, and we've talked about this on a much, much earlier show, is when Obama gathered the Republican and Democratic leadership at a giant table over yeah. Um, and that Truman House, whatever it is, across the street from uh, Blair House, across the street from the White House, and said, you know, you're here to come up. We all agree that we need to fix the healthcare system, so we're all here to have solutions, um, and not just vo- you know, not just air our grievances. And the Republicans just aired grievances the whole time, and, and Obama never took control of that, basically giving the Republicans the upper hand in the in the messaging. That went out to the public. It was just like what we were talking about with with Donald Trump and uh, and a lie traveling around the world quickly, is that you know those grievances traveled so quickly that all the hope that that the public had for hey maybe we've turned a corner here, maybe we reverse this this decline that we had been going into where the parties weren't getting together that started with Newt Gingrich, and now we're going to get back to where we were, and Mitch McConnell said. No, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. And look how quickly I can turn uh, what looks like a hope for the country into uh, a point of division. Okay, and, so and, I'm using, gonna and, take, and using race as as a part of that too. Right, um, but also to I'm going to take the other side of this as we wrap up this segment, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go this route. Last week, I was a little less uh, hopeful than you. I was a little less hopeful than you about where the state of the republic was. 
this week, I think I'm a little bit more hopeful than you about where we are. Not, I, I'm not more hopeful than I was last week. I'm simply saying it in reference to where you are at. Yep. And here's why. Joe Biden has become, <laughs> this is a bizarre to say, my favorite political figure of our lifetime. I have fallen in love with this man. The moments, and I, I spoke about it last week, and what I was thinking was that we should put this out on the Guardians of the Republic on our Twitter handle, some of these videos, watching him hug that special needs child and tell him it's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. A man who this week when he was talking about health care and said my family has used more health care than we would have liked, his decency, his kindness, his empathy, I believe might might change, might change the path that we're on once he is actually in power. And I, I just think his competency and empathy, competency and empathy might change things. And look, I get it. And we should try, the Democrats, not we, the Democrats should try to get Georgia for sure. But if it doesn't happen, I do believe that Mitch McConnell because of his personal relationship to Joe Biden, will not treat Biden in the same way that he treated Obama. That is a hope. I'm not saying that I'm like, I'm sure of this, but that's my hope. And I, I do see brighter days ahead. I pray for brighter days ahead. We need them. Okay. I mean, I, I agree with you on on Joe Biden's inherent empathy and and maybe his knowledge of what's happened over the past 40 years or so and he's seen the decline and if he if he acknowledges how that has changed and how mitch mcconnell himself has changed from what he was um i just saw ron clean was on with uh, the new chief of staff was on with lawrence o'donnell and the two yes. were talking and lawrence o'donnell had served as a, a senate aide at the time and just said you know in the 90s mitch mcconnell was a different person Yes, exactly. That's yeah, my, yeah, so. and, and, and it's one thing to have to listen to a 45 year old man of color, tell you what's what, as opposed to his comrade. I, I just, I, I hold out hope for that. I think it was terribly unfair what happened to Barack Obama. And I think it's remarkable that a man who I was uh, lucky enough to take a picture with in Barack Obama and have a poster of him here in my office, that Joe Biden, it brings me so much joy that I said to my wife this week, I said, he's my favorite political figure ever. And maybe it's just, this is what we need. <laughs> like yeah, we are desperate for this, that I'm just so grateful that he's going to be in place. Um, but it'll be interesting to watch and interesting to look at one of the things moving on to our next topic because um, we're not going to go in deep into polling this week, is the Democrat, the war within Joe Biden's party, which is really starting to poke its head out. Um, we saw a battle between uh, AOC and Joe Manchin um, and Elisa uh, uh, Slotkin. Um, she, there was a big article this morning that just came out in Politico that was, that I have a lot of quotes from that I'm looking forward to reading, but do you want to help set up like where we are in the democratic party, what we're seeing here in the democratic party? Well, I mean, the, the, the Joe Manchin AOC battle probably, um, encapsulates everything that we're seeing, which is, um, the, the folks that are the centrist folks, uh, particularly those in the house of representatives who won seats that are you know, by, by ter very tight margins that have been long held by Republicans in 2018. Uh, those folks are saying all this talk about Black Lives Matters, but particularly defund the police, about uh, socialist health care, and just the, the terminology and the, and, the, and the language that they're using had turned off their voters. And that's why 
they had a very tough time being reelected and, and many of their colleagues did not get reelected. Mm-hmm. And that we have to stop talking in, in these terms. It's uh, basically what they're saying is it's very easy for folks like AOC who, you know, once you're past your primary, you are guaranteed to win by 20 or 30 points in the general election to sit there and just spout off whatever policies that they want because they don't have to face electoral consequences for what they believe. And they're not helping the other side of the of the Democratic Party, whereas the AOC folks are saying, look, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket on issues of climate change. We see day in, day out how race is dividing us as a country, and we, we just have not yet come to terms with dealing with that honestly. Um, and so it, it requires a, something bold. And so we're going to sit out there and say something bold. Um, you know, and I tend to agree to some extent that how do you accomplish something bold, though, without turning off this broader coalition of folks with, with the underpinning that race is driving this division as much as anything else in our, in our country? Uh, what your thoughts are? Uh, well, I mean, I think that it, it's a really tricky situation that the Democrats are in. And I want to tip my hat to AOC and the and the crew and everyone on the far left, the progressives who did not sit at home because they realized and spoke to the fact that getting rid of Trump was the most important thing. I completely understand where they're coming from. Where it's like, okay, now we're here. Like, what's what's up? But then I also see what Abigail Spangenberger said. Um, who is a Democrat who barely held on to her seat in Virginia. I'm going to quote her. This is from um, the caucus meeting that happened two days after the election. And I'm going to quote her and I'm going to take out the dirty word and just use it something else so, so we don't have to make ourselves explicit on iTunes. If we are classifying Tuesday as a success from a congressional standpoint, we will be we will get effing torn apart in 2022. She shouted on this call. Um, James Clyburn came out and basically said defund the police and socialism is the reason the, what he said was Jamie Harrison didn't lose just because of this, but this certainly didn't help my people who I am friends with in the center, right, who were scared as hell about all of these things, because what, what Slotkin said, because I have to say, I'm caught right smack in the middle of this party. And right smack in the middle of both of these perspectives, okay? Because I understand where Slotkin and Spangenberger are coming from, where Clyburn is coming from. I also deeply understand where AOC and the far left and the progressive wing is is coming from. We do live in a systemically racist country, which is uncomfortable for the people who are suffering under that, but also uncomfortable for the people when they hear that. You know, I mean, I have a quote here of Slotkins talking about Trump. You know, the thing I'll say, this is what she said in this article. You know, the one thing I'll say about Donald Trump, he doesn't talk down to anybody. He is who he is, but he doesn't talk down to anyone. And I think that there are certain voters out there because of that who identifies with him and appreciates him. It's not just that he eats cheeseburgers at a big celebrity dinner, celebratory dinner. It's not just that he does things that the common man can find and appreciate. It's not even because he uses kind of simplistic language. He doesn't use complicated wonky language the way a lot of Democrats do. Slotkin said, we sometimes make people feel like they aren't conscientious enough, they aren't thoughtful enough, they aren't woke enough, they aren't smart enough or educated enough to just understand what's good for them. It's talking down to people, it's alienating them, and there's just certain voters who feel so distant from the political process, it's not their life, it's not their world. They hate it, they don't like all the politics stuff, Trump speaks to them because he includes them. This is a major issue that the Democratic Party has, because you have mm-hmm. like basic facts that are true. 
and that in New York and in California, that they are the things that bring the passion, that bring the money, that make the Democrats go, we need to fix our country. If we bring those messages to these districts in Michigan, in Virginia, in in Staten Island, where Max Rose lost, you're going to lose. So, like, how do you balance that, right? How do you make sure that the truths are spoken, that are believed, but not in such a way that it pushes people away who don't want to go down that road? It is, it is what I'm praying for President Biden, that he has the wisdom to find the way to bring those groups together who had reason here in 2020. They had to come together to get rid of Donald Trump. Well, now it's a different world. Mm-hmm. And we could be setting up for a bloodbath in the Democratic Party if they cannot figure this out. Yes. Um, a couple things here. I mean, you know, one, the irony, of course, with Trump and his, and his language is uh, that and I've, she's completely right. But that he he treats them as suckers. I mean, while he's doing that, you know, they're completely suckered in. I mean, he doesn't give a damn about them, but he is able to speak to them in a way that makes it feel like he is one of them or 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 gets them and gets their fears by playing on their fears and then using it to his own advantage. But this is, you know, for those of us authoritarian authoritarian playbook, right there. Yeah, yeah, right there. So that I mean, that's one thing. But. but the point is, you're right. I mean, Democrats have been doing this forever, is that if people just knew what was good for them, if people just looked at this rationally, they would see that this was good for them. And it is always has been talking down. But I think the issue of race as it's entered into this conversation now and will not leave the conversation, and, and for good reason. I mean, it shouldn't. Damn good reason. Is, is, um, is that it has to be dealt with now and it's going to be very painful to deal with it but if we don't then we're just going to continue down the same path and it's going to end up and ended up coming out in a number of different ways i mean one is look at the co look at who voted for donald trump right now um it involved a coalition of working class whites and working class latinos right he even got a slight bump in a support among african-american americans mm-hmm. okay working class so you know so his appeal to the working class he speaks to them and speaks across you know so they have they started building you know the whole thing with democrats have been saying all along is okay all these old republicans will die out and because of the diversity of the country suddenly we will you know take over and of course we saw some evidence of that when you work really really hard this year in arizona we saw in arizona and georgia right so um yeah to a certain extent but then you end up uh, putting places like Texas and uh, and Florida out of play because of that, and then places like uh, Ohio and Ohio, um, yeah. and uh, and Iowa that you'll never get back that you should have had at least some sort of shot at, right? Uh, the thing that I will say though is that we do have to deal with this. The thing is when you when you use phrases like defund the police as as the Not a good your phrase. policy prescription for it, it ain't going to work. So you're going to ask for, rather than and asking for 80% and being willing to compromise to get to 60 or 65%, you're asking for 100% and they're guaranteeing you're going to get 0%. This is what I don't understand with, with with these people. Well, it's right? well, they're not these people. That we, we, I, I have, look, I work in the centrist left part of the democratic world. 
Um, those people, the AOCs of the world, I have great admiration for. I really do because what they're here, here's what they're doing. They're speaking to the reality of their district, right? Yes. Slotkin speaks to this and I'm going to, I'm going to do this and then I've got a solution. How about this? How about a solution to the issue? The, this is what she said. The key distinction within their ranks, she argued, wasn't between moderates and progressives, but between politicians who represent competitive districts and those who do not. Mm-hmm. That to me sums it up. It's like, you know, yeah, AOC, you're right for your district, for Jamal Bowman, which is my district. This is what you should speak to, to get your, get, get it. But, but you have to understand Joe Manchin's in West Virginia. And if Joe Manchin decides, let's just say Osof and Warnock both pull it off. Not impossible. Not impossible. We'll get to that a little bit later on. Let's say they pull it off. What's going to stop Joe Manchin? One, Joe Manchin will not let anything happen that is um, wildly to the left. He just won't. But what's going to stop him from going over to Mitch McConnell? What's going to stop Mitch McConnell from saying, would you like to be the chair of the, uh, what would you, what do you want, Joe? What do you want to come over here? You have to be mindful of that because that Senate seat is going to matter. So now here's a possible solution. I'm curious to hear what you think. She described a text exchange with a quote, very liberal house Democrat during the combative conference call in which they discussed a plan to start pairing off. Check this out. Mm-hmm. Two by two, moderates and progressives, or at the very least convening smaller groups of them to build relationships and trust. Without taking these steps, Slotkin emphasized the Democratic Party would remain paralyzed by its inter, inter, internecine, I don't even know that word, divisions. Uh, come on, help me out there. I think, look, one of the things that made the voting work on Election Day Yes, was you had a Republican and a Democrat working together, counting these votes, people working together within the Democratic Party. That's what we need. We need to bring the party together so that we can then hopefully find a way to bring the country together. I love this plan. I'm a big Elisa Slotkin fan. I'm also a big Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fan. Sorry, everybody. And there's there has to be room for both in the party or what you're going to find very soon is three political parties. You're going to have the Trump party, the AOC party, and then the Ben Sass, Alyssa Slotkin party. And, <laughs> and then when that happens, you are going to have a Trump run world yep. because the Democrats are going to split 30% will go with AOC or 33% will go with AOC um, of the 50%. So let's say 60% of the Democrats will go there. And then the other 40% are going to go into the centrist party. And then you'll get 80% in the Trump party and 20% Trump wins, period. Something you got to be mindful of. And and here's something where I think your feelings about President Biden will, I think, play out because this is exactly how he operates. And he might, yes. he might be the one who facilitates this. In addition, think about some of the things that he has done along the way. For example, um, you know, he said from day one that he was going to pick a, a woman as his vice president. Mm-hmm. And we all knew basically it was going to be a woman of color, even though he never said it. And this is the way he goes about these things is just say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And it's done and not sit there and, and hold up. I mean, and certainly they celebrate the fact that, you know, we have our, the first uh, woman of color as vice president. First one. Uh, yeah. And, and they do that, but he did it without, you know, all the, the sturm and drang of this has to be done. This needs to, you know, this, uh, that, 
this this over the top kind of rhetoric that has been driving the divisions. He's acknowledged that this just needs to be done, and he just does it so matter of factly that I think that you're right. And with his personality and his empathy and all those things, is suddenly you know he's the kind of person who can get some, some things done, and suddenly you realize, oh wait, we turned a corner on this a transformative issue. presidency. Yeah. Is, is perhaps on tap. And actually, you know what? Let's use that because it's going to lead us directly into our very first hot take. So let's move on to our hot take segment where we're going to take 90 seconds to discuss some of the big topics in the news. And when you hear this sound, it's time to move on to the next one. So Patrick, you're sending the first one to me who's going to, we're going to be discussing someone exactly so, involved with this administration. Go. Yes. Yeah, so uh, to Joe Biden's chief of staff will be Ron Klain. Um, maybe you want to explain first who he is and what do you, what do you think you, of you explained Ron Klain. Well, I mean, Ron, Ron Klain was, was, uh, Joe Biden's uh, chief of staff when he was vice president and also Al and, Gore's chief of staff and Al Gore's chief of staff and also, um, ended up uh, leading the Ebola response task force yes. uh, under president Obama that kept Ebola in check, uh, in check around the world. So knows about how to handle a pandemic, too. So what do you think about this announcement? What does this say about Joe Biden? I'll tell you what. I mean, as soon as this came out, first of all, there's there's a little bit of drama there. When 2016, Ronald Klain went to work for Hillary Clinton, which was another example of Joe Biden sort of looking past the past and dealing with the present. Uh, Ronald Klain has, was the, a two-time uh, chief of staff for the vice president. This dude, when it was announced, Twitter went ablaze and just said, Perfect choice. Frickin' perfect choice. Compare that to Rahm Emanuel when he was named for Obama, and it felt like a, a, a dangerous choice. Ronald Klain, watching him also last night on Lawrence O'Donnell, I was deeply impressed by him, by his intelligence, by his grounded sense of self, his understanding of what's on tap. It was a it seems to be a wonderful um nomination. What did you what do you think? I look, even AOC praised the nomination. Yeah. I mean, so again, this is Joe Biden sending signals with who he picks. Is that like I'm just going for pure competence uh, in this role? That's what we need in this role. I'm going for pure competence. Somebody who can sit down and talk to people and listen to people. Mm. Uh, you know that that just send a, a clear signal. And, and obviously, with Klain's uh, experience with Ebola, yeah. is also sending a signal that you know we understand what the issue number one is coming into office yeah. on January 20th. And and look, the the ability to sit there in in february of this past year before it came out he went to congress and spoke about the dangers of this pandemic before anyone else was talking about it and, say, and saying basically that it is we are not prepared and we're going to really suffer the consequences mm -hmm. okay now let's move on to this georgia race uh the two races in georgia i want to talk just briefly about the polling as of right now they're kind of close. Everything is within the margin of error, which surprises me a little bit that Warnock is so close. I, I'm curious what you think polling was. Then I got something to say about both of those yeah. senators. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of folks out there who will distrust the polling, but actually, the polling in Georgia in, in the November right. election was closer than in most other states. It was actually pretty good there. Uh, we have a big question mark, as we mentioned before, about who is going to show up, whether the Trump voters will show up, whether they feel engaged enough uh, to do that. But Warnock, Raphael Warnock, uh, the pastor of Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church in the Kings, yep, in Atlanta. Uh, he just rose through the ranks in the fall. Like he was back there and in third place and suddenly rose to be in first place uh, in this. Just really like cleared the deck of of his Republican opponents in that open primary. And um, I think he's the 
of the two Democrats running, I think he's the stronger candidate. No there. question. He is the stronger candidate. The issue I have is he's also an African-American. And in Georgia, will that will people who decided to vote for Biden say I'd rather have Leffler? Um, <laughs> I think it's how you pronounce her name. I, I, I'm a little concerned about Ossoff, to be honest. Uh, if I could get 30 minutes with him, what I would tell him, I think because of his youth, he's only 33 years old. He he tends to be terribly serious and it's a serious situation. But I would like to see a little bit more levity to him. I was able to watch both he and Warnock on shows. I think it was Lawrence O'Donnell. I've never watched so much Lawrence O'Donnell in my life. I was terribly impressed with Warnock. I thought, wow, look at him. Like, that's a guy who I think should win. Um, Ossoff, I really didn't, I, I did not think very highly of what I saw. Um, so so that's where that is. There's a possibility of a split decision on, on that, people splitting their vote and across the table. Mitt Romney joins the Democrats, maybe. Or right. Pat Toomey, Pat Toomey. Okay, Pat Toomey. so... Let's move on. We got to got to move on to the next one. All right. So uh, our next uh, topic. Um, how about? Did you see this tweet by uh, Meghan McCain where she sent out a picture of her father? Yes. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's Arizona. What I was like it? People, I like people who don't lose Arizona, yeah. which obviously is in reference to I like people who don't get. I like people who don't get captured. Uh, you know, Meghan McCain, her husband worked in the Trump administration and worked on the campaign. I think that was a really tricky situation for her. Wow. I mean, Cindy McCain is all in, came out in the Democratic, uh, you know, at the convention and spoke on behalf of Biden, is part of the transition team. Um, and and look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I just think there's something, you know, there was, there was another one I saw, which was a little bit dirtier. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, the grandmother who uh, basically said, I killed Joffrey and I want Cersei to know that. I don't know if you're familiar with the show. There was a picture of John McCain in that face and basically saying, I want Donald to know that it was me. I was the one who did it. I was the one who gave Arizona to Joe Biden. But the fact that John Lewis and John McCain both, it, there's just something appropriate about that. And speaking of this, do you think there's any chance, because I, I touched on this in a minute. Let's say there is a split decision. Let's say Warnock wins, Ossoff loses. I think that's possible. Could go the other way. Is there any chance that Mitt Romney decides to go over and join the Democrats? No, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I, I just uh, it's just not where he belongs, um, and he he knows that. And and his I think his he's like the McCain's. It's like the, the, we want to bring back our party. We want to bring back the Republican Party to where it was. But there may not um, be a Republican. Yeah, party. well, that's that's you know I think where the McCain's have been going is that maybe the Trump has taken it just too far. How about and we'll Lisa Murkowski, man? How about Lisa Murkowski? Yeah. Lisa Murkowski. Uh, no? Murkowski, there, there's a different situation. We're going over our time a little bit, but there's a different situation. And part of it depends. There's a ballot measure in Alaska that hasn't been decided yet because they haven't finished counting the votes as we're talking right now. Uh, that would change their primary system to an open jungle primary. And in that case, she would be less beholden to the Republican Party than she is now. Well, she's already an independent. We're moving on. Okay, can Trump, yeah. so, sorry, Justin. Uh, so, can yeah, next Trump, topic. Can Trump pardon himself, Patrick? Can he pardon himself? Uh, my understanding is that technically he can pardon himself. Um, and, but you have to be specific about what you're pardoning yourself from. And you can't pardon yourself from future crimes, only from past crimes. Um, and only from federal crimes, not from state crimes. Wow. So, you know, that may so not help him. 
the attorney general of New York has been looking into quite a few things that he can't, Donald Trump cannot pardon himself from. Um, as we know, he, Donald Trump also has a, uh, a, a loan that he personally guaranteed that's coming due in the next uh, year or two. Um, and a number of other things that are they're coming on. So he can pardon himself. He can pardon all his children. He can only pardon them specifically for things. By the way, when you when when you accept a pardon, you're also accepting an acknowledgement of, of guilt that you actually did it. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to add one little thing into this. My my sister-in-law, I have two wonderful sister-in-laws, but my sister-in-law, Wendy, reached out to me right before the show and asked if Trump could be sued later if he does not help the Biden transition from people who die from COVID-19. And they can point to that choice. Could Trump be sued or, you know, in some way? What's your answer to that? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, because you act, you're acting as president there. Um, and you can always make the argument that you thought it was in your best interest, even though uh, every right-thinking person knows that it wasn't. So right. I, I, well, insurance I, companies and hospitals might also kind of join in on that and say, yeah, but gross just, negligence by the president. Yeah, but again, gross negligence by a public official is the fault of the public official, and it just falls to government. Now, they could sue government for it, not Trump personally. Got it. Okay. All right. Oh, next one. Um, so what do you think of um, Biden's communication skills as he's getting into this role? OK, so I, I watched Joe Biden, who I have expressed my great affection for in this very episode of the show. There's one thing I'd like him to work on, and I'm trying to find a way to I can't get to him, but maybe I can get to the person who gets to him when he's giving speeches in front of cars. It's just not a good setup for him. And the problem is he turns back into a 20th century politician. And what he ends up doing is sort of speaking louder than he needs to, not understanding that his audience that really matters is not the people in the cars. We talked about this with Cory Booker, right? It's not the people in the cars who are honking the horn. It's directly to that camera. And he has a wonderful, you know, we see him in a press conference earlier in the week when people were saying to him, what will you do if the Republicans don't acknowledge you? And he goes, they will. They will. That's the energy that we need, even in those big speeches. It's not his strength. And when we go to Atlanta and we go to Georgia, I would recommend actually not sending president-elect to those very often. Um, I would recommend Barack Obama, certainly, Stacey Abrams. And one thing we didn't talk about last week on the show, which I was wrong not to speak of, was the Guardian of the Week could have been Stacey Abrams, the Guardian of the Republic, because the work that she did in Georgia, we did not mention. And so I just really want to give a tip of the hat to Stacey Abrams, a New Deal leader, which is an organization that I work with, um, who really changed a state and now has just announced that she is going to be running for governor in 2022. And I think she has a darn good show shot at it. Right. Although I, w I will say the, um, remember guardian of the Republic is not electing your fellow members of your it's party to, to office. Um, the democratic, guardian. except even, even if that will eventually lead to better things for the Republic, but just pointing that out there anyway. Fair, fair point. Okay. Now we're on to what has become my favorite part of the show. I shouldn't say that, but it kind of is. Here comes the wild card, Justin Mason. Come on, Justin, tell us what you've been thinking about. I feel like, and as a Republican, I'm uh, I'm very torn on the behavior of uh, members of my party not acknowledging the Biden victory and calling him president-elect and thanking him. I feel like the Republican Party is a um, divided family at Thanksgiving dinner, and with Thanksgiving coming up, I think it's a it's interesting analogy because. 
is this party the party with the racist father that uh, everybody's uncomfortable around, or is it with the racist grandfather that everybody kind of just like ignores and just kind of waiting to die off? And uh, I'm <laughs> hoping it is the latter that uh, everybody's just kind of staying quiet uh, while grandpa is still in the room, and then the real adults will make the decisions once grandpa's gone to bed. Wow. Okay, well, that's why I, I'm going to say that that has continues to be um, the that was fun, uh, Patrick. What do you have any thoughts yeah. about uh, Justin yeah, I, and I the grandfather? Do. I mean, I do have a lot of thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm in um, in New Jersey, uh, where uh, Republic the Republican brand here uh, for years has been that moderate northeastern Republican brand, and you know they've just been creamed over the past a couple of years because they've been swamped by the image of the Trump brand of their party. Uh, but we have a race um, right now this in the 7th Congressional District, which looked like the Democrat who had picked that that seat up, that was one of the flipped uh, seats in the blue wave two years ago, looks like it's now, it's tightening as we're, we're, we're we count our, our votes right now as slowly as California does uh, because of the, the pandemic and the, and the mail balloting. We just, we're not up to speed. But the point being is that there was a scion of the that moderate Republican Party, Tom Kane Jr., the son of a former governor, Tom Kane, who was also co-chair of the 9-11 Commission under President Bush, um, among many other things, and who in New Jersey is is revered. Um, He's probably the most popular living politician in New Jersey, uh, Tom Kane Sr., in his 80s right now. Uh, So, you know, his son ran, and the thought was, you know, would would that, that nostalgia be able to overcome the Trump brand, particularly in a district that includes Trump's golf course in Bedminster, the one that he goes to um, all the time every weekend in the summer. Um, and my thinking was, no, it wasn't enough that the Trump brand was was tough. But now we're seeing as the votes are coming in and, and being counted that, that it's going to be a razor thin margin here. And maybe, Justin, you're right. Maybe it is the grandfather and not the father. Uh, that we're waiting to leave the table right now. And maybe there is still enough residual support for a, a broader based, more moderate uh, socially and, uh, you know, still conservative uh, fiscally Republican Party, the old fashioned Republican Party um, to still reemerge. Maybe there's still a heartbeat left for it, which is which if there is, would be a very good thing for the Republic. Very good. So speaking of the Republic, let's talk about our guardian of the week. Uh, This is where someone in America puts their own personal political uh, future at stake for the sake of the Republic. I started with Ben Sass because it was a placeholder. You went to the judges who are hearing the cases. Yeah, Ben Sass. Yeah, no, no, listen, Ben Sass is there. Ben Sass, my older brother, Joe, gave me a real hard time. It's like every time you say his name, you say Sass. But I am proud of him so far. He's doing better than he had been. Uh, but uh, then you you brought up the possibility of the judges who are hearing the cases. Eh, not really, because are they really doing anything in that way? And then you went, ah, I've got it. And I went, ooh, yeah, you got it. So tell us who it is. Uh, Brad Raffensperger. Yep. Name might not ring a bell, but he's the secretary of state in the state of Georgia. He's the one who's been weathering the storm that's uh, from his fellow Republicans, including the two who were the nominees for uh, the for uh, Senate in the runoff in January, that he ran a shoddy election, that he ran a faulty election, that he ran an election with fraud. Uh, and he's been getting reamed by his fellow Republicans. He's a Republican. 
And what was interesting about the, we've heard complaints about Georgia elections for years, coming from mainly Democrats and, and the African-American community, about voter suppression, about not enough voting booths, uh, you know, polling stations and long waits in, in urban communities. We had none of those complaints this time, none of those complaints about potential fraud, none of these other things that we expect to come out of Georgia. This guy apparently ran one of the cleanest elections uh, that we've seen. Just so happens that Joe Biden is going to win that election, even after they do a recount. And, and by the way, but they're making he, they're making it be a hand recount as opposed yeah, to yeah. Well, and then what he did is he said, okay, you know, just because of the nature of this, we're not going to do the spot recount. Which what, he, what they usually do is recount a certain number of of precincts by hand and then see if they match the original count. And that's the initial recount. He said, we're going to do the whole, the whole, the whole shebang. We're going to do the recanvas, the recount and everything all by hand, all whatever it is, 3 million votes or whatever it is in Georgia. Um, and so it's a huge undertaking, but, but you know, he's, you know, he's not doing it because he's, his fingers crossed that that's going to change the outcome. He's doing it because he's, he's under attack and he's going to say, look, everything's going to be transparent. We're going to sell. If you if you don't trust the machines, we'll do the entire recount by hand then. Um, and he's been getting his hat handed to him. It calls for his resignation. All sorts of incredibly unfair attacks on him uh, for just doing his job. And he's withstood those attacks from within his own party. And for that, Brad Raffensperger is our guardian of the week. Yeah, and I'm going to give a, to a, a little backup guardian from the same state, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has been going on television this week, earlier in the week, basically saying, no, the election is fair. And he looks like a Republican. My God. I mean, he's just like right out of central casting. And he's saying, no, 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 I understand. And we're willing to hear everyone's point of view. But based on everything that we've seen, this is a completely fair election. So a little tip of the hat to uh, Mr. Duncan as well. Um, so that's it. Okay, that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any comments or thoughts for the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes on your favorite podcast app. And please give us a rating and tell your friends. Give us a rating, sure. Tell your friends and family so others can find us. Also, if you want to catch up on some of our past episodes, check out our website at Guardians-Republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode soon. See ya, Justin. Thank you.